Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. Welcome to the Prawlcast today. I'm so excited to present our guest speaker, who I've been associated with now. When I count the dates and the weeks and the years, it's been about 20 years. Mr. James Perry. Oh, I'm excited. Mr. James Perry is going to talk to us about his community-based work uh, specific to the COVID-19 pandemic. And he's going to talk a little bit about his HIV education testing uh, skill set and practical work he's doing in the community. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about James. Uh, let him just in, kind of introduce himself. But James Perry is a community act- activist who does invaluable work with the district, with the district's most vulnerable population. As a product of the district himself, native Washingtonian, he has worked as providing community-based services close to 20 years. Mr. Perry currently works at Family Medical Counseling Services as a senior navigator which requires him to facilitate COVID-19 testing services throughout the entire District of Columbia. Additionally, he also provides testing services, HIV education services, Narcan distribution, outreach harm reduction, community education, and prevention, as well as mentoring others in the recovery community. I'm pleased to let you know, and I'm excited to share that he's a certified addictions counselor, a certified peer recovery specialist, a recovery coach, and a certified RAP facilitator. So family, I think we, I don't have to convince you we have an expert with us today who's going to take us through the pandemic experience, particularly as the healthcare provider. So Mr. Perry, welcome. Glad to have you to the show. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. You're looking well. And uh, so I thought we'd just start, just tell us just a little bit about about you personally. I think you referenced you're from D.C. And just tell us a little bit about you. Well, Paul, I'm one of the fortunate individuals that was able to live two lives. Yeah. And meaning that, you know, I, I feel victim to peer pressure early in life and I went down the wrong road. But what I found out when I went down the wrong road is that I actually was a compassionate individual that cared about people. Unfortunately, yeah. my choices early in life put me in places that I couldn't be myself. You know, mm-hmm. where I was at, you couldn't give a man a hug and say, man, it's going to be all right. It's been misinterpreted. What happened was I promised myself if I ever got through that particular ordeal, mm-hmm. then I was going to be the person that my parents raised me to be. Yeah. And um, I got through the ordeal. And at that point, I began to do something different with my life. I've been a certified addictions counselor now for quite a number of years. And I did that. But what happened with that was I began to get burned out after about 10 years. You know, yeah. It's very difficult when you care more about people than they care about themselves. And it's draining. And so, you know, I myself, had a gift of recovery. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted for the people that I was, the, the clientele that I dealt with. I just wanted so much for them to have what I had. Yeah. But like me, you had to come to a place in your life where you're ready. And so 
So what happened was I decided to kind of like do a career shift and lean more towards navigation because what navigation gave me an opportunity to really help people because being a distance counselor, I had a lot of plugs. I had a lot of large network. Yes. And, so I, and so I developed this thing I called warm handoff. Mm. So I would bring somebody to you and say, this is Paul Wills, a personal friend of mine. He's a good guy. He's going to take care of your job. And that's how I help people. I didn't help people by just getting my address and a name. Mm. So what happened as a navigator, I was able to use my vast um, network. And so, and more importantly, well, not more important, but just as important to me is that it was a whole lot less paperwork. So, you know, the documentation, it got so bad, as you know, in the field that, you know, it's, it seems like it's more documentation heavy as the years go on. And I understand the importance of documentation because you have to justify what you did with the funding source money. Right. They want to justify it. I understand that. But that's not why I got into the field. I got into the field to help people. And when it got to a point where people would come to me and ask me for help, and I would have to say, well, uh, do you feel like hurting yourself? Do you feel like hurting somebody else? And mm-hmm. you say no to them, the question, well, I got to go do paywork. I see my group. And that's not what I got in for. So I just feel I changed fields. And um, now I'm really, really, I feel having the opportunity to be hands on boots on the ground. Okay. And like I said, I'm real comfortable in those spots because of my prior life. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people. And so I just, man, you know, I feel I've been relatively successful. Yeah. As a no. senior navigator. Yeah. So, so tell me a little more about the certified addictions counselor training. You decided to become certified first. That seems like that was the first route in your professional development. And so that was, what year was that? And what was the preparation like to become a certified addictions counselor? Well, let's see, I've been certified about since 2006. Mm. And uh, preparation was, it was, it was smooth for me because um, I had some natural abilities that were pointed out to me when I was going through the process of trying to, to uh, come drug-free myself. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I had was that I, I very insightful. So right. I can kind of listen to a person talk, kind of pinpoint what's going on with them. Now, what the training did for me was it helped me with the terminology. It helped me kind of put labels on stuff that I kind of already knew. And one thing it did for me is that it made me understand that it's more than one way to get clean. That's right. I myself went through a 12-step program. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what I found before my training was that I felt like everybody needed go the route I went, or you're not going to get clean. Once I had the training, I realized it's more than one way to the top of the mountain. I began to respect people's journey. So it it helped me not kind of like beat NA and AA over people's head. A lot of people feel like that's just to constantly remind them of who they were or remind them of drugs or alcohol, and that's not what they needed. Um, And also what it did for me was I was fortunate enough to take a nine-month co-occurring training through the Department of Behavior Health. And what that did for me was it made me understand that all bad behavior is not dope behavior. If people have mental health issues, it made me understand that a lot of people use those due to the fact that they're not on their psychotropic meds. So it kind of broadened my understanding. Yeah, I'm really yeah. glad. Ever since I've known you, I've recognized that you have the gift, the gift of insight, the gift of discernment, the ability to understand what's not spoken and said and intertwine that into what is actually being said and act it out. You know, I'm still training staff. I still supervise a lot of staff. I'm a field instructor with Howard University School of Social Work and Counseling. And I tell the students all the time, we can teach you theories, we can read this textbook from beginning to end, but if you don't have the gift of engagement, you kind of have to, have to come to this field with it, the gift. 
you're going to have a challenge of trying to operationalize and implement and practice the theories and the models and the science. I don't believe we choose this work. I believe people who do this kind of work are chosen by divine privilege, by divine right. And in that divine assignment, uh, people are given gifts. And, and so I'm in agreement with you, James, that I've seen your ability to um, understand thoroughly the barriers, the challenges, and the pathways to recovery. I'm also delighted to hear that you understand recovery in such a way that it's not just one shoe fits all. It's not just one pathway. And so you've refined your understanding even beyond the training to become a CAC to understand that AANA has helped many people and it works. But there are other pathways towards recovery. And um, it sounds like you're a wonderful guide going down that corridor of recovery. Now, you talked about counseling fatigue, uh, working with those persons who are struggling with drugs and alcohol. And you're right, many people in the field at some point experience this counseling fatigue, right? And you, you mentioned that sometimes it's difficult to engage with a person when you want them to be clean and sober more than they are ready to accommodate. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, well, what I'm talking about, Paul, is I guess I could term it as where is the individual motivation? Mm-hmm. You, know, you got internal motivation and you got external motivation. A lot of the people that I was seeing coming through uh, the criminal justice system, a lot of them were externally motivated, meaning the parole officer said, if you don't get clean, I'm going to send you back to jail. And so for my experience is, is that it's difficult to, a person can't address a problem that they don't see as a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I got a, a theory that I came up with to, to describe this. So if you ever hear this, it's plagiarism. It's my theory. I developed it. It's, it's, oh. called, the booger, it's called the booger theory. <laughs> booger theory is, is that if I got a booger hanging out of my nose right now, I'm going to keep talking like I think I'm cute until it's pointed out to me. But that's once right. I recognize that I got a booger, uh-huh. I'm going to clean my nose immediately. And that works for any problem that I have. If I'm on drugs and I think it's the white man, pro-laws and my baby mom. If I think all these people are the problem and I'm not the problem, then guess what? I'm not going to adjust anything about me because in my mind, I don't have a problem. So my job, as I saw this, to convince an individual or put light on the problem to the point that they recognize it. Because right. at the end of the day, what I preach, Paul, is that you have power. You know, you have power. And the power is in your choices. And I'm a living witness of that. When I made poor choices, I had poor outcomes. I made better choices over the last 20 years and I'm in a better position. I'm no different than the next man. It's just that my choices started to change. So the population I serve, they don't really care how much I know until they know how much I care. Once that's they right. feel that I care about them, then they follow me anywhere. And so, Absolutely. and that's another gift I think that you have to have in this field. You have to have, you have, to, have to give to in your first encounter. You have to translate to a person that you sincerely care about. Them. That's right. And, and that's that's not something you really can teach. And so you know, and then. I also believe in tough love. Mm-hmm. When I say, well, you can call it tough love. But what I do is I, I do a lot of, okay, say for instance, I get a person from see Sosa and I ask the first question I always ask people when they come to a group of mine is, why are you here? Now, if they answer me because the parole officer sent me here, right? That's or right. the parole officer don't like me. That's right. This, this is what I do. I pull my chair in front of them. I sit in front of them. We're going to do a role play. Mm-hmm. I'm the parole officer. Yeah. And guess what? You're right. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. You know what? This right here is a 357 Magnum. And if I had a chance, I'd blow your head off because I don't like it. 
I said, but the only problem I have is I don't have any bullets. But guess what? You give me a dirty unit, don't come see me when I ask you to, that's a bullet for my gun. So now the question becomes, now the question becomes, we know, I said, we know that I don't like you, but what I want to know is why you don't like you. So I'm going to always make you think. That's right. I'm, that's a firm, I'm a firm believer that if you think, you'll say yourself. I don't have the power to say. All I had mm-hmm. the power to do is try to wake you up. James, you're right on target. You know, I've been practicing uh, recovery work now for about 30 years. And I guess over the last 30 years, I may have treated thousands, thousands of, of patients and consumers. Uh, and I've worked in mandated settings and, and voluntary settings. But I'll tell you, James, I agree with you. I've never once treated a client that voluntarily walked in the door. There's generally an external motivation that pushes mm-hmm. them in the room. Like the probation officer says, I'm going to violate you if you keep using. Or the doctor says, I'm going to take your kidney out. Or the wife says, I'm going to leave you. Or the employer says, you're going to lose this job if you don't stop using. Mm-hmm. But what's needed when they do walk through the door is a mindset of a counselor that you describe. That's firm enough to tell you the truth, but sensitive enough to understand the dilemma, to really understand how you earned your spot in this recovery center. Sensitivity is a critical thing. Listen, at Family Medical Center, it looks they're using a term or a job title called navigator. What's the job function of a navigator? Can you describe that to us? Well, basic job function of a navigator is to navigate consumers to the services that they need. Mm. That probably will be the, the basic. Now, because family, family, family medical happened to be in business for 43 years, yeah. and they were the only people addressing the HIV problem 42 years ago east of the river. You had, you had women walk up town, and that That's was it. Right. So right. they opened up 42 years ago by four social workers over there, and it just have evolved. Now, today, you know, we don't, we're not, we're definitely experts in HIV, Mm-hmm. And we and we had those services. We had, but we also are a FQAC, federally qualified health center. Meaning we service everybody. I see. So with that being said, as a navigator, well, I'm a senior navigator. I am the only senior navigator. And what I do is, one thing I do, I go to different businesses and create motive memorandums of understanding with different yes. businesses. Okay? okay, and basically, all that is is saying that look, we have these services that will benefit your consumer. And you had that service that we don't have, so we can work together so the consumer can get all the services. And this is one of the major things I do. But I also do trainings. I do certified addiction. I, I fill in for a counselor if needed. I see. Uh, but I also am a prep facilitator, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I go around to different treatment facilities and I teach about pre-exposure prophylaxis prep. With the latest mm-hmm. advance in the prevention of HIV, you take a pill every day, and if you have sex with somebody, it's positive. Right. The pill to protect you. But anyway, I teach that. I also, I also supervise distribution of Narcan, and I also go to churches and other organizations, and I train how to administer Narcan, and then pass it out to their congregation or, or their people. So, right now, because we live in a pandemic, or pandemic, however you view it. Because we're living in that, what I do now is we have a COVID testing team. We have a, a, a walk-up site outside in the parking lot where you can walk up and get tested Tuesdays and Thursdays between 10 and 1. And that's what I'm doing now. Believe that, I'm overseeing this from my car, right? And you do that right from your vehicle? You no, nah, we do it. Uh, what's that? We, we do it outside 2041 where Family Medical Corporate is located across on the big chair. 
2141 in Southeast. Okay. Yeah. You're out in the community, you're in the neighborhood. What is it like working in this climate of the pandemic, you know, as the worker, right? So you're out interfacing with a lot of with a lot of clients, you're out in the community and public settings. What is it like for you and what is your your risk exposure on a daily basis? Well, my risk exposure is very high. And the reason it's being very high because a lot of the population we deal with, not only do we test outside our facility, yeah. we also go to Lincoln Heights, Woodland, different housing projects. We, we test Mondays and, and Mondays and Wednesdays. We're somewhere in the community. Okay. And a lot of times, we don't serve anybody that, that does not have a mask. Okay. And how do you handle that? If I were to present for testing and I don't have a mask, what feedback do I get? Well, what you would get, you, you would be given a mask. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I had masks that I that a I mask gave available. Okay. I had masks available. Not only do we have this type of mask, which is the surgical mask. Yes. But we also have we have material masks, different color masks. I see. And a lot of them they like the pattern. But what we want to do is we want to, also with a which you'll be if you come to me without a mask, you're gonna get educated about yeah. how important it is to wear a mask. Tell me more about the education components. What what educational information do you give the clients at the time of testing? Well, I let them know, and you can look this up. It's an article in the informer. Mm -hmm. It was in the informer, right? And what I did is I Xerox, color Xerox the article. Okay. Um, I had one in my truck. But what I do is I pass the article out. But I also, because I know some of us don't read or don't want to read, may throw the right. article away, I highlight some of the important points in the article. And one of them is that... COVID-19 is the third leading cause of death. It is. The third leading cause of death in the nation. Is that right, James? I actually took the opportunity to look at the um, infection rates and just in the District of Columbia. And right now, over 19,000 persons have tested positive for COVID. 6,000 deaths. Yeah, and 660 deaths to date mm -hmm. and just, just in the district. And so even with the information that's available through through media and the good work your team and your agency is doing out in the community, we still have people uh, and communities that are testing at a relatively high rate. So how do you explain that? There's a lot of information circulating, the providers of information such as yourself. Why are people still testing positive at high rates in the District of Columbia? What I believe is, I believe there's several reasons why. One reason is because our last president got on TV several times without a mask. So if, if you're looking at that, you may interpret well, that it, it. Yeah. You may that, interpret it as, I don't really need a mask because the president don't wear one. So okay. I think that's one reason. Okay. Another reason is the fact that pe a lot of people have succumbed to the conspiracy theory, thinking that when they get tested, they're not only being tested, something's being put up there. So I they're see. concerned about being infected. Okay. Um, a lot, you know, as well as I do, our people have a uh, generational suspicion. That's right. Okay. And for okay. So you have to introduce and break down those myths and that stigma and those fears. Uh, and, you, and you're a wonderful change agent because you're from the community. Your word and your information is more trustworthy because it's coming from Brother James. And you understand the fears um, very directly. Let me ask you this, James. We know that there's more vulnerable populations right now, the elderly, those with compromised immune systems and chronic medical disorders. But there's a group of young adults, and, and or as we call them in the DMV, the youngins. Mm -hmm. uh, do you find a lot of the young adults and or teenagers 
in your line getting tested? Are they getting tested now? No, you know, they're not getting tested. Well, I had, okay, so far today we tested like 30 people. And out of those 30 people, you had a couple of parents with two or three of their, their children. Right. Which I think is wonderful. Okay. And then, but as far as young people, you might have, I might have, teenagers, I might have tested maybe four people. It was, let's say, from 16 to 21. What, what's the explanation for that? Why, why do you think that well, is? I think that, once again, the pandemic and the information that was given early, right, mm-hmm. was it, it, they gave wrong information. And so young people still believe that, first of all, it's an older person's problem or disease. They no. believe that. They don't. They believe that if you don't have underlying health problems, then you're gonna be all right. And then just being young, you know, when you're 16 to 21, you got a sense of immortality. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and that's what makes it so reckless. And not to mention that the decision-making portion of the brain is not fully developed yet. So you're encouraging young adults and, and teenagers to get tested because uh, even if they're not at immediate risk themselves, they go back to families where their aunts, their uncles, their parents, their grandparents are at risk for some exposure. Let me ask you this, and let me tie, as we get close to our conclusion, the pandemic with recovery. Uh, The the pandemic has had a tremendous impact on the service delivery platform, the treatment platform. You know, substance use disorder programs are using telehealth now as a primary intervention style. And the pandemic, in terms of community-based recovery, has also cultivated a reliance on Zoom, because I understand that A and NA particularly now is in a Zoom format. I can attend a meeting any time at any day, not just in the V, but throughout the entire world. I mean, I can go to a meeting in Australia if I wanted to by the Zoom vehicle. What do you think about that uh, A and NA uh, participation through Zoom format? What are your thoughts on it? I think like you think that if a person accepts this is where we are. Yeah. This is where we are. You know what I'm saying? We're not going back. This is where we are. If you accept that, then I think that it can be beneficial. Although you have a lot of older people, such as myself, yeah, it have to really work hard to accept the computer, first of all, right? And to use it as, as a, that particular media form. I myself find it difficult. I do it because I understand it. This is where we have evolved to. And I understand that the reason the dinosaurs are not on the earth mm-hmm. is because they couldn't adapt. Yeah. And if I don't adapt, then I'm not going to make it. And That's my right. primary purpose is to spread the word and ch- help people get to a positive place in their life. And I can't do that if I don't participate. That's right. In where right. we are. But right. unfortunately, a lot of older people don't go to Zoom meetings. They're not getting meetings at all. And then you have you have a population that don't have a computer, don't have access. Right. You know, these. you know, James, that that is so true. Many, particularly in the SUD population, the substance use community, many of them don't even have technology available at all to engage with services, whether it's treatment or community-based meetings. They don't even have a phone. Uh, and so that's something that we recognize is, is a significant barrier. Listen, we have just maybe a couple of minutes left. What do you think is the greatest challenge facing us right now as it relates to the pandemic? If you had the number one challenge we're facing here in the DMV, what is it? As it relates to services or treatment or behaviors, what's the biggest challenge? I think I would say mental health. Mm, 
I would say mental health is, is really challenging. Mental health covers a lot of ground. That's when I right. say mental health, I'm not only talking about the person that was on second travel meds and then they found it hard to get their meds because of the pandemic and then they resort back to street drugs, self-medicate. I'm also talking about the people we're in the society, criminal justice system, mm-hmm. that don't understand that when you were incarcerated, if you stabbed somebody, if you got stabbed, or if you witnessed some erroneous stuff, then that's trauma. And yeah. trauma unresolved is trauma unresolved. That's and right. So, so, so coming home into this pandemic, you're more than likely to try to self-medicate, to try to deal with your mental health, not even knowing that you have mental health issues. Right. I, I think that it's a lot, a lot of mental health going on that people aren't aware of. And when it comes to the situation that we're in now, people are more concerned about what's more important is eating, having a roof over your head. So people yeah. really got to address their, their health. Um, that's right. That's right. Like, let me say this, Paul, and I'm going to let you go. You know, Black Lives Matter, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Now, I agree that, of course, you know, police shouldn't brutalize anyone. I agree with that wholeheartedly. But what I tell people that I interact with is that if Black Lives Matter, then you get your colonoscopy. If Black Lives Matter, Absolutely. then you have mental health assessment. If Black Lives Matter, then you will be doing a lot. It's a lot of things, you know, we can always say what someone's doing to us, right? Mm-hmm. But my question is, why do you expect people to do more for you than you wouldn't do for yourself? That's a good point. And we should demand an answer and a response from our community. We should challenge them to really state their position on that. Do we really appreciate that Black Lives Matter? And how do we demonstrate that? And how do we operationalize that? Listen, in closing, this mental health piece is significant. We know the pandemic has uh, facilitated some person's uh, uh, to really need mental health services, even if there was no pre-existing diagnosis. The anxiety is, is uh, increased, depression, admissions in both SUD and mental health facilities has increased by 50%. Uh, the pandemic itself has cultivated a, a need and a, an appreciation for mental health services, but it's also just uncovered some pre-existing dilemmas for those who have been undiagnosed and kind of struggling under the radar, that Mm -hmm. the pandemic has shined a light on some of their emotional struggles and and what that requires. Uh, So mental health, you know, and I'll I'll close with this. I remember growing up in the church on first Sunday, you'd have all the deaconesses sitting on the first and second row, and they would all be 70 and 75 years old. and, And they would all, each one of them, insert this in their testimony, every one of them. And I was marveled as a young man and didn't really appreciate it. They would say this, thank God for raising me in my right mind. They would say that. And and that now as a mature man, I understand what that means. I understand how valuable good mental health is because without that, you can't navigate and operationalize anything. You can't conduct business without good mental health. You may not even uh, determine for yourself you need drug treatment or or you need to go get tested if your mental health is poor. And so we, we want to encourage everyone in our community to um, reach out if there's any level of emotional distress to the support systems that are available to get assessed, to get treatment if it's necessary, and to, just to get the support you need to get through this critical time in our country. James, this is, man, you're a powerful brother, man. And I appreciate your advocacy and your your community empowerment and the tremendous work as a um, frontline worker. You're right there on the front line 
And I heard you say that you are putting yourself at risk to help others and to save other people's lives. And that's remarkable and to be acknowledged. And we thank you for your service. Hey, James, I hope this isn't the last time we talk. In fact, we'd like to have you on the show again, maybe as a part two to, to have some more discussion about COVID-19 and maybe a little ways down the road, we'll get an update from you on what you're seeing there in the heart of the community and how is the community responding to education, testing, and treatment. Would you like to say anything in closing, Brother James? I'm like to say that uh, hopefully at one point we can talk about this uh, opioid epidemic because it's oh, been yeah. overshadowed by the pandemic, but it's, it's steadily growing also. Fentanyl, you know, I think at some point we need to talk about opioid epidemic and where that's going and how the effect that's having on us, you know. I would like to do that. Um, and and uh, when we uh, line up that topic, we would like you to come back as a guest speaker because I know you're you're definitely an expert in that subject matter. Absolutely. James, I'm, I'm going to ask you to be safe. I'm going to ask you to be well, and we'll see you out in the community as you do your work. Thank you for your service. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>